0: If you'd like to support this show, not whatever podcast you were listening to before, but this show right here, the politics, politics, politics program, you can go ahead and support us at takepoliticsseriously.com. Again, that is takepoliticsseriously.com. It is there you can get our bonus podcast. They come out on Monday and on Friday. And I'm going to let you know, uh, these are these are times where you want to get on that level. You do. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein dies. On on Saturday, first time I'm going to talk about it is Monday. I'm going to talk a little bit about it here, but I mean at this point we've already been past that story. We got more stuff to talk about. If you want to make sure you're not missing any of these, you got to head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. Sign up at the three dollar level. We also have a great interview that is on the feed right now. We're going to talk a little bit more about it during the show but go ahead and check it out it is called the history of racial quotas and immigration law it is an interview with katherine benton cohen a professor of history at georgetown and i gotta say it's illuminating considering how important immigration is to our modern world you owe it to yourself to just take this 30 minutes and learn about it never talking about how we support the show though what do you say we just do the damn thing Ladies and gentlemen, hello, hello, hello. Welcome to yet another edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young. Joining you again from the fine city of Oakland, California, I can guarantee you that I will end this episode in Oakland, unlike last week (laughs) when I had to catch a plane to Vegas. By the way, big shout out to everybody that I met at DEFCON. It was awesome to see so many of you guys out there. And uh, thank you to all the folks who came up to the Hack 5 booth where I was helping out my buddy Darren. We got a lot to talk about here, though. Is Trump in trouble? Like, I know that I've, I've, I've focused a lot on the 2020 candidates because... Well, to be totally honest, I find them a lot more interesting right now. And I, in general, kind of think that you guys are not lacking for Trump coverage these days. But I do want to ask this very simple question. If this continues to go the way it's going, is Donald Trump in trouble right now? Because I would make this argument. Either we are going to watch things boomerang for him, we are going to watch things recover, or Donald Trump is in serious danger of not being re-elected, or at least increasing his odds that he will not be re-elected. I'm going to pick three things. None of them have to do with impeachment. (laughs) None of them have to do with removal. None of them have to do with Russia. None of them have to do with Robert Mueller. I'm picking three things, three things that I believe will have consequential ramifications on his 2020 campaign because there's not a lot that he can blame it on. These are him. These are his signature items. We'll start with the one that I've talked about the most, North Korea. Quite simply, Trump gave away the farm. He now regularly says that a dictatorial leader of a country is a beautiful letter writer. He says that he wants North Korea and America to walk hand-in-hand into North Korea uh, being a functional member of the international society, an economic powerhouse. He, on a whim, became the first American president to step on North Korean soil. That's a lot to give up. Aside from... Aid, economic aid, removal of sanctions, that's pretty much all the song and dance you can do. If this is the diplomacy game, you're at nutcutting time. It's time to to make moves. It's time to either see action or you start taking action in hopes that you will draw them out. He has done all this for what? He got no leeway on joint exercises with South Korea. North Korea petulantly started firing off missiles and then questioned the resolve of the United States. And even then, how much is really possible with North Korea? If you were just having unilateral talks between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, how much is possible when it's very clear that China is the one pulling the strings? Which brings me to number two, China. Trade wars are easy to win and someone needs to stand up to China. Well, Trump's insistence on the latter is testing his resolution on the former. Trump made headlines two weeks ago saying that he would no longer delay a larger block of tariffs that would greatly make it cost prohibitive comparatively to where we were To do business in China This is putting your money where your mouth is This is you saying To China That if you are not going to Give us better and more favorable terms If you are not going to be a good Trading partner with you Then I will make it harder for American Businesses to trade with you At all So What happened Well this week he blinked Trump did move the start date of those tariffs back to December. Why? Because between now and December, we are going to see a lot of goods move from China to America because that's the Christmas stock. Your Christmas presents that you are going to buy in several months, they are on their way from China between now and December. So at the request of some American companies, that start date got moved back. But here's the question. If Trump already moved his red line, how many more times is he going to be able to make sure that his home team isn't restless? How many more coupons does he have and how seriously does China take him? That being said, China doesn't really look too hot right now either. They got an economy that could be moving a lot faster and international turmoil in Hong Kong. That Hong Kong protest is ugly. It is bad. Let me put it like this. On Monday, I put out a free political newsletter wherein I made reference to some of the conspiratorial theories around the death of Jeffrey Epstein. I personally think that there's probably a larger story that needs to be told about the Epstein death and so I expressed that. What I got back were several well-meaning but very voluminous emails describing to me the danger of even interjecting myself into conspiracy theory and how much I can be somebody that should be better about that. To which I understood. I ran one of them in full the next day. And then I ran a story that came out today, this is the Wednesday edition of the Free Political Newsletter, about the Hong Kong protests and whether or not China is going to intervene in Hong Kong. Whether or not Beijing, I should say, not China, whether or not Beijing is going to intervene in Hong Kong because there are currently a lot of protests there, some of them violent. This all stems from the idea that Hong Kong, which was turned back over to China under a one nation, two frameworks policy, meaning that Hong Kong would able to be independent while China would still be able to claim it. China now has said, well, we're going to be able to extradite whoever we want from Hong Kong. This has created tremendous Turmoil and it shut down the Hong Kong International Airport for two days in a row. What will happen if China makes a move there? How will the world look at it? How much money will it cost China? And does all of this make a deal with the United States more or less likely? That's bad. And there is a school of thought to say that hey, you know, by next year, it's the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, it might be time for a new leader. Xi might be looking for wins to solidify his position at the head of that organization. Maybe stuff like this does move the United States closer and closer and closer to a big win for Trump. But right now... Right now, all we have is uncertainty. I got two or three really long emails about Epstein. I got like 15 emails wondering whether or not World War III was on the brink based on all the uncertainty coming out of China. Whether or not we are looking at a new Cold War. If that is the case, if that is the mood of the electorate, This is bad news for Donald Trump. He needs, needs a win on China. Because even if the economy is something that is more on the rocks than he wants it to be, he can't be the guy that started a new Cold War. And he certainly can't be the guy that started a new World War III. But let's focus on... The third element that, you know, if you're a Trump fan, you can't be happy about. That is the economy. Let me read y'all a headline from CNBC. Main yield curve inverts as two-year yield tops 10-year rate, triggering recession warning. I'm going to be real with you guys. I have no idea what that means, but I do know this. When the Stonks crew starts talking recession, it's bad news for the president, but it's worse news for a president who has taken risks with a thriving economy so he can attempt to renegotiate bedrock elements of our global trade relationship. Make no mistake, if the economy is still booming by election day, it will be an excuse for Trump haters to stay home because they like money and security. But if this economy is in a recession, Trump's got to own it. And even the most MAGA crowd in history has to think twice about heading to the ballot box to support their man because they like money and security. Now, I am not here to say that this is all done. I think that we have a lot of space left to go. The head of the Fed, Janet Yellen, just came out and said that she does not believe we are moving into a recession. However, the odds of it have somewhat increased. There's a lot of time to go and there are many moves to make. But I'll tell you this. If on at least two out of these three, if not all three, there is not positive action to shore up Donald Trump's position, then he is is not just vulnerable, he is very vulnerable in 2020. Politics! Go ahead and get on the train for the aforementioned free political newsletter. Why? It's free. It's political and it's a newsletter. It's written by me five days a week, Monday through Friday, in your inbox, delivered at 12.15 Eastern Time. Every morning. You go ahead and get the five stories that I have thought are the most important of the day. A few little hot takes, mostly gifts. It's a good time. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all that have continued to help me build this mailing list. We are now into the late 60s. We are on the cusp of of, of Nixon's election. That means that we're at 1967 or 68 in our, 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 our count as we're building this up. So please... Continue to throw this out to people that you might think uh, would like a a uh, five-day-a-week reverent political newsletter in their lives. This is the lifeblood of this community, and I am so, so, so happy to be a part of it. So head on over there right now, free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Politics! I did... A a great interview, and by great, I mean I don't think I was very great, but I think my guest was very great. Catherine Benton Cohen, uh, she gave me a great interview. She's a professor of history at Georgetown University and the author of Inventing the Immigration Problem, The Dillingham Commission and Its Legacy, where we talked about immigration. Now, I'm only going to play a little clip, you can go download the whole interview. That is also in the feed, but if you haven't been checking out these interviews, I really implore you, if you are into history and you really like context, and that's something that I really, really, really want to build a culture of on this show, is understanding history and context. Uh, we we, we talked to her about the beginning of racial or ethnic quotas in our immigration laws. Here's Catherine.
1: largest study of immigrants ever ever conducted in the United States, Um, a study called the Dillingham Commission, named for its chair, who was a Republican senator from Vermont, Um, and they recommended a series of um, restrictive laws uh, for the federal government, and those reports came out and recommendations came out in 1911, um, and combined... Uh, with their recommendations for a literacy test and some kind of numerical limit, what we would later understand to be a quota system, as well as continued Asian exclusion. Those combined with the Red Scare and the rising popularity of eugenics to create the legislative um, and kind of political pressure to create, for the first time, what people called quantitative limits on immigrants in the 1920s. And what those became. Uh, were what became known as the national origins quota laws, which gave very large quotas to countries in Western Europe that the United States liked, like Germany and Great Britain, and very, very small quotas to Eastern and Southern European countries and no quota at all to Asian countries. Really an incredible watershed, um, in my view, um, in the history of immigration law. We take for granted the size and scale of the bu- pardon me of the bureaucracy needed to regulate immigration mm. but that kind of federal power was very new in the early 20th century and very controversial
0: i wanted to play that clip because i believe that there is a core element of what i'm trying to do here and what i think you guys respect about this show That kind of breaks the idea that we are in a very defined political reality. Because I believe the point of a politician's life is to define a reality so they can be a character within it that the most possible people understand. Again, I don't believe that this is a cynical take. I think this is literally the art of communication. And yet when you look at something that is complex as immigration, We are a nation of immigrants, after all. That's that's kind of our deal. That's that's what the United States of America has built itself on. We have a complicated, and some might say, including myself, shameful past when it comes to having a small group of people in the federal government decide what was going to happen. Now, whether or not you view this as federal overreach, or you view this as As racist people in Washington, D.C., deciding which good people should be allowed in and which bad people should not, doesn't matter. What matters is that we understand that there is a past and that we are currently in the present and that at some point there will be a future. And remembering what happens now and applying what happens then will affect what happens going forward. So when it comes to immigration, we do we, we we touch a lot in this interview, up to and including the the fact that I've I've always been blown away by the fact that I grew up in South Florida. South Florida was a ground zero for the wet foot dry foot policy. This is the idea that if you are from Cuba and you make it to dry land in Florida, congratulations, you're now here legally. If the Coast Guard stops you. Out in the waters Then you gotta go back And also by the way This is only for Cuba This is only because of the Cold War The Dominican Republic Haiti Any other nations in the Caribbean No sorry you could be operating a business In the United States In Miami, in Little Havana In Hialeah, in Orlando And next thing you know If you don't have your papers right You're out of here I think a lot of this kind of stuff is arbitrary, but we get so wrapped up in the political facets of all of it. Everybody wants to use something as a club to beat their neighbor with that. Sometimes we don't realize that there's a lot that we can bond on. So go listen to that. I know this isn't a contemporary political segment here in the middle of the show. Normally I do those, but we're going to talk a lot about immigration going forward and, Consider this a little amuse-bouche. Hey, it was a really good idea to end that segment, which was relatively serious, with the phrase amuse-bouche. Wrong! Oh, well, if that's the case, then it's probably time for the... Hey, you know, these 2020 Democrats sure are defenders of journalism and reporting. Wrong! (laughs) I mean, you know, when it's about their enemies, they are, but... Uh, This is from The Hill. Democratic contenders unload on the news media. The Democratic presidential contenders are letting loose with a barrage of attacks on the news media, ripping national outlets for what they say are biased coverage of their campaigns or unfair double standards in covering Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders has led the way, making his grievances with the corporate media central to his anti-establishment campaign. The Sanders campaign took it up a notch this week calling out CNN and NBC by name and making the case that the Washington Post is covering him negatively because he's been critical of the newspaper's billionaire owner, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly not because his poll numbers have softened, right? No, it's gotta be biased. Meanwhile, Joe Biden's campaign lashed out at reporters this week for giving outsized coverage of the former vice president's recent verbal gaffes. That includes him saying that poor kids are just as smart as white kids and that the Democratic Party uh, will select truth over facts, as well as pointing out that he was vice president when he met the Parkland shooting survivors, which, for the record, he wasn't. Beto O'Rourke also uh, uh, took to uh, the, the criticizing the media train, saying that there is a too delicate dancing around by the mainstream media in not calling Donald Trump a white supremacist. Democracy dies in darkness. Hey, speaking of Beto, I think he's going to run for Senate. Wrong! Yeah, he ain't. Uh, uh, Despite the fact that the Houston Chronicle wrote a op-ed piece this weekend uh, calling for him to run against John Cornyn, Beto come home, Texas needs you, read the headline. Nope. Beto did take some time off from his campaign to continue to uh, work with the situation in El Paso where there was a horrifying shooting last week. He will begin his campaign again, on Thursday, and it will be at a big old rally in El Paso, but it will be for president. Uh, he, uh, according to his aides, have, has had no thoughts about running for Senate. He is going to continue on with this presidential race, and it is in respect for the horrifying tragedy that I will now end my commentary on Beto O'Rourke's chances for president. The state of Israel is really excited to greet Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, the two insurgent freshman congresswomen. Wrong! Yeah, not so much. (laughs) Uh, After apparently uh, much deliberation, they were allowed as part of a congressional delegation to come to Israel. This uh, was uh, upsetting to President Trump. Uh... There is then a mention that there would be a high probability that Omar and Tlaib would want to visit the Temple Mount because, of course, both congresswomen are Muslim, the first two that we have had. But this was Israel's, uh, or sorry, a quote from an Israeli source. The preferred goal is that the congresswomen won't come to Israel at all and cancel the visit for their own reasons. If they do arrive, the goal is to, quote, minimize as much as possible the damage to Israel in the U.S. political system and in public opinion. One of the things on the to-do list for Omar and Tlaib, should they show up, is to meet with representatives of the Palestinian Authority. Oh boy, get ready for some tailor-made to be overblown for the summer international reporting. Hey, remember last week when I said that the United States would be first in line to sign a trade deal with the United Kingdom? That's gonna go seamlessly. Wrong! No. All right, this is like one of, for whatever reason, this is a, 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 a little back and forth that I tend to have with, with uh, former guest host on this show, Tom Merritt, Daily Tech News show host, of course, in, in his own right. Whenever we talk about Brexit, the big thing is the Irish backstop. All right. What is the Irish backstop? Well, I'm going to explain it to you. The fact is that in 1998, the Good Friday agreements were signed. This was to uh, tamp down the violence between the IRA and all that. If you remember, I don't know, you know, uh, go listen to the Cranberries if you want to just get up to speed on that. Anyway, they created a seamless Irish border problem is this, that Ireland is still in the European Union. If the United Kingdom is not in the European Union, then that means theoretically there would have to be customs checkpoints in Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, and Ireland proper. So, Nancy Pelosi has said that there is no chance of a US-UK trade deal passing Congress If the no deal Brexit violates the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, meaning that there would have to be some seamless border with Ireland or else Nancy Pelosi says that a U.S. trade agreement just simply is not going to happen for fear that there would be yet another rise in sectarian violence. So, good luck with all that. Hey, everybody can agree what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. Wrong! All right, let's talk about it. Jeffrey Epstein was found dead in his jail cell on Saturday. The official description of it is that he committed suicide. He was facing tremendous jail time for child trafficking and sex uh, offenses. He was a tremendously influential man. He had connections in the highest form of government, uh, not only in America, but also in England and presumably around the world. He liked to fly people on what was colloquially dubbed the Lolita Express down to what was colloquially dubbed Pedophile Island. Politics was not his only interest. He also rubbed elbows with big names in media big names in academia. Effectively, if you moved in the orbit of New York City or Palm Beach, you knew Jeffrey Epstein. So two weeks ago, it was alleged that he tried to commit suicide. He allegedly said that he was not trying to commit suicide, therefore insinuating that somebody was trying to kill him. And now he's dead. There is still information coming out on exactly who was there and who was supposed to be there and and how this could happen. Cause theoretically, I mean he's he, I guess, was on Suicide Watch, was taken off Suicide Watch. Look, I don't know what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. And by the way, neither do you. I will just say this number one. The thing I I find the most fascinating about all this is the mainstreaming of some very fringy political conspiracies. The fact that immediately Clinton body count is the thing that is trending and then the corresponding uh, Trump body count is, you know, just indicative of our trending times. And I don't know if Jeffrey Epstein was killed. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. What I do know is this. There's much more to learn. And it would certainly not surprise me if he did not take his own life. I'm, I'm just saying, it would not surprise me. I try, and this is an instinct that I learned as a reporter, to not be too sure. That's how you really get yourself in trouble is when you are too sure of something, when you are using your priors to guide your journey for more information. Now, on some levels, you have to work with your instincts, but trust but verify is supposed to be the way that you go about things. So when I sent out the email that said Jeffrey Epstein quote-unquote kills himself or quote-unquote commits suicide, I forget which one I used, That is a little tongue-in-cheek. But also, I'm going to go ahead and not be sure about this one for a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and see what comes in. Because by the way, one of the things that came in via CBS yesterday was that an inmate said that Jeffrey Epstein was shrieking in his cell before he was found dead. Shrieking in his cell. I don't know how many times a suicide has been preceded by shrieking. But I'm not here to say that he that somebody killed him. I'm here to say I'm not sure and I'm going to continue to be not sure. Hey, here's something else I'm not sure about. Who's going to win the 2020 Democratic primary? Which is why we have a brand new, ooh, tantalizing poll to talk about. But before we do, there are a few folks who are just not going to be able to be a part of things. So Gillibrand, Steyer, Castro, Klobuchar, Gabbard, Yang, who, by the way, qualified for the debates. Uh, Booker and O'Rourke, I'm so sorry, but... I don't see how you can hate from outside of the club. You can't even get in. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh yeah! Let's go ahead and get ready. This is an economics and youGov poll, national for the Democratic primary on the floor if you got that booty oh, 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 dance dance, dance. Dem, 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 dem,
1: dem
0: stepping up first to the stage the mayor of south bend uh, with 6% of the vote it is mayor Pete Buttigieg with 8% she is your senator from California Kamala With 16% of the vote, slowly, slowly being vampired by Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders! But now your headliners With 20% of the vote Elizabeth
1: Warren
0: But your headliner buh, 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 buh Barely, with 23% of the vote, it is Big Joe Biden! That's within the margin of error, folks. That is the best Warren poll in history so far. Judge 6, Harris 8, Sanders 16, Warren 20, Biden 23. And by the way, that's just when you look at only Democrats that responded. Otherwise, if you got all respondents, that was a one point spread. Look, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. That was 21 20. With all respondents 23-20 When only Democrats were counted That is That's monumental That's huge for Warren And it's a big underperformance for Biden Who has uh, otherwise been in the In the low 30s Now he's in the low 20s That is an aberrant poll Obviously you can only take one Aberrant poll so seriously But it is certainly Something to keep an eye on Politics All right, let's go ahead and get into but your emails. You can email the show the young American at gmail.com. Sean writes, how do background checks work now in states that require them? What is the stupidest easy move the GOP could approve? What is bump stock this time around? Could it be linking states and federal databases into one easily searchable one and allowing states easy access if they wanted to but not requiring it? What is the lowest bar here? Well, it looks like what people are coalescing around and, uh, you know, there's been reports that congressional Democrats have looked to meet with Mitch McConnell, uh, reports that Ivanka Trump has been calling around on this, trying to see uh, how uh, things could move fairly quickly when when Congress gets back in session in a few weeks. But it looks like what has uh, begun to gain popularity is the red flag laws. Basically, this would allow for states a funding of for states to create their own red flag law divisions, meaning that you'd be able to remove guns. Law enforcement would be able to remove guns from people's hands if they trigger these red flags. That's where we're at now. But again, I do think it might happen. I, I, I do. I, I honestly think that the the stars have kind of aligned on gun control. Donald Trump is somebody who really relishes these kind of Nixon goes to China moments. The NRA is in total shambles because their CEO, Wayne LaPierre, has looted the, you know, company. And you can never, ever, ever tell me that Donald Trump doesn't want to go From crowd to crowd and say, I did more on guns and criminal justice reform than Obama. And even if these things are not super popular with his base, want to know what is super popular with his base? Painting Obama to be a feckless idiot. They will eat it up. Marin writes, as somebody who's fascinated by politics, I really appreciate that you attract and interact with people from all over the political spectrum. It's rare that you can view an opinion uh, like Roberts. Uh, there was a guy who wrote in basically to our free political newsletter saying that he doesn't like Trump, but he'll vote for Trump if it you know, means not voting for one of the social justice Democrats, basically. So you can read his opinion as a statement. Not really much emotion either way. It's just facts through his explanation. I can understand his perspective, even though I think you can always just not vote. That'd be protest enough. I'm on the other side of the world, and I know exactly where I sit, left on just about everything. But it's nice to be able to read about how people on the other side of me ideologically feel without commentary or spin. A lot of the way media talks about this, they have to make everything into a moral argument, rather than, people have an opinion, we can let that lie, and only dig into it if it makes sense to. So thanks. Marin. thank you. Thank you for getting me. And finally, Dominic writes, political horse racing is stupid. Weird that I like your so-so much, right? Who's up? Who's down? Who gives a shit? Anyway, I do take great pleasure in watching Kamala Harris fall to where she belongs. I think Tulsi Gabbard contributed to the boat sinking uh, for her most, if I had to guess. I think she has one of the lowest chances of all the candidates to beat Donald Trump, too, which will be the primary reason that I don't vote for her. But that's another email. Well, thank you, Dominic. And that about wraps it up for us. I want to remind you guys that you can support this show at payjurydaily.com. You can write me at theyoungamerican.com. You can f- sign up for my free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Music has been provided by Valesco and Killers, and you can find me at Justin R. Young everywhere. You can also download archived episodes of this show at BonerWars.com. If you want to have political discussion 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, you can head on over to my Discord, bit.ly slash discord, An always-on chat room where cool people who like this show discuss politics without wanting to rip each other's throats out. Is that pretty sweet? I think it's pretty sweet. Until next time, is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying that some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more, they talk about politics. But this is the only show that talks about. Oh! Ah, yes!